Good afternoon. It's Friday the 17th of March 2023. And welcome to UK Column News. It's just after one o'clock. Uh, happy uh, St. Patrick's Day to everybody. We'll mention that later on, but uh, welcome to the programme, Patrick. It's Patrick. great to be with you, Mike. And great joining us today is also Vanessa Bealey. Uh, we're having just a few technical problems with the, uh, with the live link, but uh, hopefully we'll get there. Uh, now we're going to start off just with a quick reminder. This is an anniversary of quite a number of things uh, today. So first of all, We've got to remember this is the anniversary of the day that we were told to flatten the curve. Uh, Boris Johnson decided that uh, he was going to invoke lockdown on the uh, 17th of March 2020, having done a U-turn and uh, given up the herd immunity uh, idea. So this was, uh, this was him uh, making the announcement. Uh, and so uh, let's uh, see what he was saying. Households where an occupant has symptoms of COVID-19 should undertake self-isolation for 14 days. All citizens should begin practicing social distancing. Uh, more vulnerable groups should avoid social contact for 12 weeks. Uh, and uh, he suspended mass gatherings such as sporting events. Of course, he ignored, as did many of the, well, the Scottish uh, Chief's uh, Medical Officer and uh, various others within uh, government. And also, uh, well, one person who was particularly keen to uh, uh, push the idea that we were all going to die in our beds. Uh, Neil Ferguson, he also broke the lockdown uh, regulations as well. So uh, we it's quite an anniversary. Yeah, you know, the other thing to point out, Mike, on this is uh, you'll show some other uh, highlights of this uh, uh, regrettable period in yes. history. Uh, it was all based on one scientific principle. There's one scientific claim that underpinned all of the coronavirus rules and regulations. Do you know what that might be? Uh, tell us. It's the myth of the asymptomatic spread, a totally debunked, fake, unproven scientific idea concept that they rolled out. And that underpins the legal judgment for all of this yeah. fake science. Let that be a lesson to everybody. Uh, indeed, absolutely. Who else was speaking? Who else was uh, making an announcement? Well, Rishi Sunak, he was Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time, and he was announcing all kinds of uh, uh, money printing exercises business rate cuts, mortgage holidays, uh, loan guarantees to business, grants for small businesses, uh, and uh, of course, future announcements about jobs that became the furlough scheme and so on. And this triggered uh, massive inflation. 100%. All the inflation that we're seeing uh, at this point in time began then. Uh, so, so Rishi, let's go back to that slide, if we can put that back up. So Chancellor of the Exchequer, in charge of the economy, right? You would think. He's got a banking background. Should know a thing or two, right, about money, right? Debatable, but okay. So, and he's in charge. He's prime minister now. Yes. Every di everything he did right there, which you're showing, uh, took an absolute wrecking ball to the economy and literally destroyed it in a matter of months. Absolutely. That's the legacy of Rishi Sunak. And of course, the next, the other thing they announced uh, was the Coronavirus Act. And uh, the result of that, naturally, uh, was that no uh, postmortems were done on anybody and that allowed them to claim all kinds of things about the, how people were dying over the following two years. Quite incredible, but not the only anniversary today, Patrick. Well, the, the one we want to point out, Mike, is the Iraq War. 20 years ago, uh, Tony Blair lied to the country, Yes. lied to the nation, and uh, lied his way into one of the worst military debacles, uh, along with George W. Bush in the United States, uh, to attack and invade and occupy 
Iraq, uh, the biggest uh, geopolitical disaster in modern times, arguably, uh, and we're still living with that legacy today. So that was exactly 20 years ago, and there were millions of people on the streets in London. I was one of them, along so with many I. of our listeners and many of our viewers at UK Column, and uh, we were all very frustrated because um, no matter how many people mobilized around the world to try to prevent this thing from happening that we all knew was coming, um, we couldn't stop it. And uh, it was hugely frustrating, but uh, it was also a transformative time because we really all realized that we need to take responsibility uh, for countering this mainstream propaganda. And this is when the alternative independent media really uh, exploded. In fact, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing, and maybe you might not either if it wasn't for that uh, fateful day. Uh, and another anniversary we should mention, and that's Rachel Corey. Rachel Corey, and uh, what, what can we say about this story? Let's, let's look at what some other people are saying about Rachel. 20 years ago today, an American young woman who was 23 years old at the time was run over and killed in Gaza by an Israeli military bulldozer as she protested the Israeli war crime of demolishing the homes of Palestinian civilians. The U.S. government never sought justice for this crime. And this is the story of uh, Rachel Corey. And I was very surprised to see this comment here by James Zogby. And um, I, I have to say thank you, James, for this. Uh, what's the lesson here, he says. Um, is, is it, if, you're, if you are an American and killed fighting for justice and human rights, the United States will ignore your death. But if you're an American living on illegally occupied land, they'll move heaven and earth. Or is a question is a question of who kills you, Israeli or Palestinian? That's James Zogby of Zogby Research, right. Zogby polls. So a, a very bold statement by James. But uh, here's uh, just an image of of Rachel Corey here, um, very young, and you know she was absolutely committed uh, to this cause as an activist. I remember uh, meeting her parents and Tom Herndall as well, the British photographer who was shot by an Israeli IDF sniper in the head, some say executed, um, two really tragic events. And so this was all happening around that time. And um, I, I, I rarely hear, she would never be mentioned in the US media, uh, in, the, in the mainstream media. She was American, the American media not interested in her story. Yes. That shows you the power of the Israeli lobby um, to silence stories like this that are just really inconvenient to the narrative. Um, Vanessa, uh, hopefully this link is working. Um, have you got any thoughts on this particular anniversary? No, I mean, I think what immediately strikes me um, is while we have this anniversary, particularly of Rachel Curry, um, Netanyahu is amplifying and increasing and expanding uh, the ethnic cleansing programs against the Palestinians, including, uh, I saw today, public executions of so-called um, fighters in Janine. So, uh, you know, it's it's uh, that was 20 years ago. Uh, the Nakba was more than 75 years ago. And now we're literally seeing the, the, the final attempt by uh, one of the most far-right extremists um, Zionist regimes to finally finish off the job, but with the geopolitical kind of juggling that's going on at the moment, um, I think Israel's increasingly in a very vulnerable position. 
and, and, and all this really shows what an absolute sham the Abraham Accords are. Uh, this was the Jared Kushner-led peace initiative uh, during the Trump administration, which Americans say, oh, we brought peace to the Middle East. Um, it was a complete sham. It's being shown to be that right now. Yeah. And as we'll discuss later, uh, the agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran will be a further nail in the coffin uh, of this sort of phony peace process uh, known as the Abraham Accords. So we'll, we'll talk more about that in a bit. Okay, uh, so let's move on then to banking. And uh, we mentioned Credit Suisse on Wednesday, or David did, but let's uh, let's bring that up to date. So uh, events have taken a turn over the last day or so. Uh, so here's the Credit Suisse website. Let's see, they issued a statement. Uh, they said, we've taken the decision to preemptively strengthen the bank's liquidity by borrowing uh, 50 billion Swiss francs. That's roughly 54 billion dollars from the Swiss Central Bank under a loan facility and short-term liquidity facility. Uh, and uh, well, that uh, resulted in the, well, the stocks had been going off the cliff. That resulted in a slight rebound, as you can see there. Uh, but today, in fact, uh, as the, the uh, news has sort of permeated people's minds, things starting to head south again. So uh, Credit Suisse stocks did nearly 2% down. Uh, today. But if we look actually at the longer term picture, uh, Credit Suisse stocks have been falling for five years or more uh, already. So there's a recognition of a significant problem there. Uh, of course, Credit Suisse getting this bailout because they're considered a, system, a systemically relevant financial institution, uh, but they've been losing customers hand over fist. And the thing that triggered this uh, was the announcement by the uh, chairman of the Saudi National Bank uh, that they were not going to uh, continue further investment in Credit Suisse. So they're signaling that they saw problems with it. Uh, what are those problems? Well, obviously, Credit Suisse uh, implying liquidity issues, which is why they've taken these loans. Um, but if we look at the risk of default, um, one method of or one way of uh, recognizing whether an institution is going to default on its uh, debts is uh, credit default swaps were effectively a derivative of an insurance policy, uh, give an indication of Credit Suisse's uh, credit worthiness. Uh, this was the news from yesterday. Credit Suisse uh, default swaps are 18 times more expensive to buy than UBS, nine times more expensive to buy than Deutsche Bank. And what this article is saying is that the cost of insurance, insuring the bonds of Credit Suisse Group uh, against default in the near term is approaching a rarely seen level that typically signals serious investor concerns. The last recorded quote uh, for credit default swaps uh, for, for one year maturity was 835.9 basis points, uh, and but it had gone as high as 1,200. Um, that came down again a little bit yesterday, but still what uh, the uh, Bloomberg at least was calling, um, you know, a really significant uh, skepticism in the markets uh, about Credit Suisse's uh, uh, creditworthiness. Um, rumors today circulating that uh, Credit Suisse has an, you know, absolutely huge uh, derivatives exposure. And of course, the one thing that nobody really understands, if, you, if you'd say that there's a headline figure of a couple of quadrillion of outstanding derivatives contracts out there, nobody understands that if the dominoes fall or how, how those dominoes are going to fall and whether, in fact, the uh, those derivatives contracts would uh, you know, net themselves out in any kind of normal way, uh, or whether it would just 
collapse in a massive heap. Um, certainly Credit Suisse had massive exposure to that and uh, a big potential problem. Yeah, you know, everyone was screaming about after the uh, collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and it was saying the U.S. banking system is uh, basically on the verge of collapse. There was a lot of panic last week over the weekend. And what a lot of smart pundits were saying was, hey, do you realize in terms of fragility, the European banking uh, landscape is much more fragile and, in fact, less robust uh, than the United States, because the United States is more diverse in terms of banking, and we have this uh, great network of, well, it's shrinking of regional banks, but there's there's also too many, too big to fails uh, in Europe that are totally over leveraged, and what happened, and they're, they're also going to be suffering from U.S. Uh, interest rate hikes and things like that. They're, they're all into bonds, they're all into hyperinflated assets. Um, there's a potential housing bubble as well on the back end of this. Um, in countries like even the UK, you could put it in that category. 100%. So there's there's a lot of problems here with the European um, system. So um, look, but in America, uh, we'll talk about that in a second. This What's happened, Mike, is that the US government has intervened. Joe Biden, they panicked, they, had, they intervened. A lot of people say this was a good move. A lot of people say it was a bad move to protect all depositors, okay? So, but what they have done is they have basically changed the playing field in a way they've nationalized banking in the United States, uh, whereby if the federal government uh, is going to guarantee all depositors to, to any level, then that also can encourage banks to uh, indulge in risk-taking, knowing that they're going to be bailed out. And certainly this, Joe Biden says, no cost will be borne by the taxpayer. This is a total lie. Uh, it is, there's a massive uh, open window loan fund for banks to tap into for a year. That could go into the trillions, okay? And this is massive quantitative easing. That's going to trigger more inflation, and everyone is going to bear the cost of that. Yeah. We're going to be talking more about this on Monday, uh, but it's it, the scale of the reversal, because of course there's been quantitative tightening in the United States for the last year or so. They've been reducing the levels of quantitative easing, uh, and uh, but they've more or less, well, it's significantly reversed that. David's going to be talking but, about that on Monday. But but still, infl real inflation is about 20%. Uh, uh, yes. America, and they just can't do anything about it, and this is going to exacerbate that problem. Well, they can't do anything about it because, because they've run out of... Uh, They've run out of ammunition, effectively. Uh, and uh, the other thing, the other point to make on this, we mentioned on Wednesday, Patrick, is it's actually what Biden has done is actually illegal in the United States. It's against the legislation that they have uh, with respect to providing uh, insurance for bank deposits, which puts a fixed limit, a hard limit of $250,000 on that. So, well, there, there's a debate that this should be adjusted for inflation every year. Yeah. The whole thing is being re-looked at. But the takeaway is all the big institutions, like a Saudi Arabia, for instance, or but in the US, all these companies, that some of them had billions in Silicon Valley Bank. Now they're saying, we're not going to have more than 10, 20% in any bank. They're pulling their money out. So no large deposits in any of these banks. But the regulatory uh, pressure on the small to regional banks is going to be so great, so all the big banks are going to benefit. Mm -hmm. So this is a massive consolidation back to the big banks, to Jamie Dimon, J.P. Morgan, okay? And, and so the, what, what about small to medium-sized businesses? Who's going to service? Who's going to give loans? Who's go and the other thing, Mike, if we consolidate the banking system in the United States or Europe, and you only have four or five major banks, mm -hmm. they become a utility. And guess what? Their terms and conditions, ESG, woke, cancel your 
account, you see what these big players are doing to yeah. people if they don't like this talk on social media, shutting their PayPal accounts down. All of this stuff comes into play. Yes. Because you have less diversity in terms of what you have available. Canada has this massively regulated, pretty much everything's guaranteed and backed up by the government, huge amounts of regulation. It's become a utility in Canada. Yeah. So th this is the direction the US and Europe might be going and this also means if they want to introduce a central bank digital currency a cbdc um, this type of an environment would be ideal for something like that the decision is made and it's not going to be your decision 100%. being made at the banking level so but it, what about first republic well the, the the shenanigans continue here so wall street banks uh lining up here to save they plug a hole, 30 billion in the beleaguered First Republic Bank. Okay, and mind you, Silicon Valley Bank had a $2 billion hole. That could have easily been plugged if they had just got their compliance paperwork together and it wasn't leaked to the press and everyone went crazy. But of course, the rest is history. So here's Janet Yellen, and this is the problem, Mike. Okay, this, she's become a politicized Treasury Secretary and she doesn't quite know what she's doing, at least when you listen to her, it doesn't seem like she's all there. Um, so here's the long and the short of this bailout. Let's look at this. Well, what they've asked is the banks to come in and rescue this guy. So 11 of the nation's largest banks announced on Thursday they would deposit 30 billion into First Republic. Okay, so this is an emergency intervention here, spurred on with the uh, support of the government. Bank of America, Citigroup, JP Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo all putting in $5 billion into uh, First Republic, Goldman and Morgan Stanley chucking in $2.5 uh, here. So another bank that's requiring uh, propping up here. So it, arguably this is a better solution uh, to you know, help spread the risk here. It's, this is the banking community, as it were, trying to solve the problem without having to go to the begging bowl. But the begging bowl's open, Mike. They've opened a window for a year. Yeah. All these guys can pull loans for overheads or to cover anything. Yeah. And we don't know where that's gonna end. It could be a trillion. They say it's a, a, a multi-trillion dollar facility, but, but we'll look at the TARP, how, how high did that go? What's the real cost of the bailouts in 2008? Was it 36? I've seen 36 trillion. I've seen as high as 300 trillion mm -hmm. in real terms. We don't know. Can we, can we see the uh, audited Fed <laughs> balance sheets? I mean, no. Look, um, okay, so here's Janet Yellen. And this is what she's been busy doing. She's hanging out with uh, Zelensky. You can see the look on his face. He's probably uh, scared he's gonna have to <laughs> kiss her like Nancy Pelosi. But uh, so she's in Kiev. The, these banks are going completely haywire. Uh, no compliance. They're engaging in all sorts of risky, bad management, everything. She's in Ukraine guaranteeing state pensions for Ukrainian government employees. Mm from the US government, US Treasury. So she's totally politicized. So this is the Biden administration. This is the US government. Everything is politicized now. And so we're gonna call this woke capital. Okay, this is the beginning of our uh, woke capital. So let's take a look at woke capital. Look at this. Did you know, Mike, uh, go woke, go broke. Silicon Valley Bank hired board obsessed with diversity, invested in five billion for a healthier planet held a month-long pride celebration, but had no chief risk officer for eight months last year. Um, so they're doing all these woke events and things like this. So let's take a look at how bad this was. Again, woke capital. 
uh, they got an A rating for their uh, ESGs, fantastic, and increasing uh, diversity and investing in all these sustainable startups, wonderful. And for eight months last year, they had no chief risk officer. So they didn't feel it was important to plug that position to, to, to get the person they actually needed. They're busy doing woke capital. So here it's investing clients' money in low-interest government bonds and securities that saw their value fall when interest rates rose. So it was a disaster. Everyone knew it was a disaster on the inside, but nobody saw. Uh, nobody could say anything about it at the time. So here's Credit Suisse, and I want to introduce everybody to Credit Suisse. That's the one that's in trouble, right? Yes. So here is the, here's Pips Bunts. He's the head of global markets at uh, Credit Suisse. And uh, yeah. Sorry, which one is Pips Bunts? It's the same. It's uh, ah. he's gender fluid, non-binary, and um, you'll see he's been recognized for this. Let's take a look at this. Wow! Oh, congratulations to Pips Bunts on being listed as one of the top 100 female executives <clears throat> in 2018. So, I mean, I am truly honored and humbled by this award. I'm proud to be uh, proud of the progress we're making towards all forms of gender. Diversity and equity, so he shattered the glass ceiling there. That's just fantastic. Uh, really paving the way for women to come from, you know, to fall in those footsteps. I mean, how wonderful. So this is woke capital at work, Mike. So do you see a pattern developing here? Governments, institutions being obsessed with uh, ticking the woke boxes. And meanwhile, the whole thing is falling apart. Yes. Rome is burning and they're uh, standing up there with their... Uh, pink knitted caps as Nero did watching the spectacle. Yes. So who good. Knows? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move over to France and uh, well, all hell breaking loose over there in Paris uh, because of course uh, the government decided that they were going to raise the retirement age from 63, 62 to 64. Uh, so thousands of people out on the streets, as you can see here, uh, the tear gas flowing. Uh, rem reminiscent of scenes we saw with Yellow Vest, but actually probably more people out this time. Um, and uh, well, we've got some more footage here uh, from later on in the evening uh, when it's dark and the fire's burning and so on. So uh, protesters falling with, uh, sorry, clashing with police and so on. Fires lit in uh, the streets, including the Place de la Concorde. Uh, police with batons and shields firing tear gas and so on, 120 people arrested. It wasn't just happening in Paris, it was happening in other cities around France as well. The unions have said that they're going to uh, continue their opposition to the pension changes. But here's the problem. Uh, here is uh, the French Prime Minister, Elizabeth Bourne. Uh, I invoke Article 49.3 of the French Constitution. And what did this allow her to do? Well, let's see. Now, Le Monde reported uh, Article 49.3 back in October last year. They updated it uh, yesterday uh, for uh, because of obviously what's happened, but this is what they had to say. Uh, paragraph three of Article 49 allows the Prime Minister, after deliberation by the Council of Ministers, to force a bill through the Assemblée Nationale uh, with no vote. So legislation gets passed without a vote in the Parliament. Uh, the only alternative to prevent the bill from passing is then to overthrow the government. So how do you do that? Well, you've got to put, you've got to put a uh, a, a no confidence motion in within 24 hours uh, and if a majority vote is obtained the law is rejected and the government collapses because a part of this uh, requirement for a no confidence motion is that there is effectively the, the parliament falls there's no more parliament you have to call a general election uh, and so it's actually extremely difficult to pass this no confidence vote if necessary 
the next logical move, says Lamond, would be for the president to dissolve the assembly and call early elections. If the motion of no confidence is rejected, the government wins the gamble. Uh, the law is passed. So uh, this uh, this uh, clause of the constitution was invoked yesterday. <clears throat> this was the response in the French Parliament. Protests from the opposition parties in the French Parliament. Uh, Marine Le Pen then uh, got up and uh, made a statement to the uh, press, basically saying that they that she intended to bring a, a motion of no confidence uh, today, uh, and well, we have to wait and see. And demanding Elizabeth Warren uh, Warren resign. Yes, the Prime Minister as well. So this is opportunity. This is the one opportunity to get rid of Emmanuel Macron. That a lot of people have been waiting for, but will will they be able to? to pull this one off, that's the question. Yes, Vanessa, you've got uh, close ties to France, you lived there for many years. What are your thoughts? Well, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because um, we're gonna talk about President Assad's visit to Moscow uh, shortly. But I was just thinking then this, this opportunity for the opposition to basically uh, secure the vote of no confidence in Macron's uh, regime. And of course, Macron's regime has the hangers-on who have uh, sustained the sanctions and the hybrid war against Syria, like Natalie Loiseau, who was responsible for calling for um, um, personal sanctions against me after I uh, uh, witnessed the Donbass referendum. So, I, I mean, it's it's extraordinary when you look at the chaos that is unraveling in the West both domestically, economically, um, militarily, etc. And then you look at what's happening in the East. And again, as I said, we're going to talk about that. But on one side, you have the building of uh, global stability and security from every perspective. And then in the West, you have this complete descent into chaos. Yes, indeed. Indeed. So uh, in the meantime, protests in Israel as well continue to, to expand. Yeah, and just, just on the French issue, one point is one of the main problems that with re-overhauling re the, the pension yes. uh, system. So the new rules, you have to work 43 years to draw a full state pension. Yeah. Um, so they're really tightening a lot of these things. So this is where the, the protests you're seeing now, I think, uh, are much more um, vociferous even than the yellow vests in terms of how intense it is mm. in such a short period of time. So you could see um, a real change happening in France. This would be the opportunity for that to happen, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep our eyes on it. Absolutely. But Israel? So same type of thing happening in Israel. There's, there's talk of a civil war in Israel and what's this all about? So we'll see how this shakes out. But um, what, the, what the president here, or the Prime Minister Netanyahu has done uh, by putting together this far-right 
ultra-nationalist, ethno-nationalist coalition, and now basically do an end run around Israeli democracy um, by passing a decree where you only need a majority, simple majority, uh, in parliament to basically say, uh, pass and do anything. Mm. Um, so there's people are really concerned now, and even former um, allies of Netanyahu are basically saying foreign leaders should not allow Netanyahu to come and visit. Mm. They're basically saying there's people out in the street right now in Israel. Um, and so it's, here's a, a former, uh, I believe, yeah, former PM. He was PM for um, a few years, Omart, um, Ehud Omart. And he's been basically urging world leaders to shun uh, Netanyahu. Um, so critics say the, the judicial overhaul in the country uh, will upend the country's system of checks and balances and would give the prime minister way too much power. So a lot of people are scared now, but Netanyahu has turned into this monster that everyone suspected that he would become, and he's really showing it now. So it's, it's really divided Israeli society, which I think is really interesting because there was already that division from COVID and the protests against the vaccine mandates. So it, it, the instability within Israeli politics and society is going to be something to watch. Yeah. Okay. Okay. If you like what the UK column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options for you to help us out there. And that would be very much appreciated. You could pick something up at the UK column shop as an alternative. Uh, but please do share material you find on the various platforms. And I just want to mention that the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation has a campaign uh, running at the moment uh, with about the online safety bill. Uh, tell the House of Lords protect and end encryption in the online safety bill. What are they saying? The UK Parliament is moving forward with its online safety bill, which will undermine encryption. Only one of the things that it undermines. But anyway, uh, Clause 110 mandates that websites and apps must proactively uh, prevent harmful content from appearing on messaging services. This is going to lead to universal scanning of all user content all the time. It's not compatible with encryption or our right to privacy. Uh, as the online safety bill enters the House of Lords committee stage, tell peers to protect end-to-end -end encryption and the right to private messaging. And they provide uh, various buttons on their page there uh, for you to click and uh, actually send messages to the relevant person. Uh, I just want to encourage everybody to get involved in that. And do they say why everything needs to be scanned in real time? What's the main reason for uh, to, it? To, uh, to make sure that... Uh, uh, harmful content is not appearing on messaging apps. Ah, I see. So to catch it before it shows up. To catch it before the, it shows up. On the up. internet. So Indeed. a little bit of pre-crime there. Indeed. Let's move to, uh, well, drones. Okay, big story. Of course, uh, a U.S. Reaper drone uh, was forced down, uh, MQ-9 Reaper drone, uh, on the heading towards Crimea, or what the Russians uh, had uh, allocated as restricted airspace. Um, so there is a deconfliction line and there is communication between the U.S. and the Russians regarding this. So this is well known. The U.S. is denying it. You reported this uh, yep. story on Wednesday. Is that they don't think they've done anything wrong. This drone was in international uh, airspace, so everything's fine. Uh, so the U.S. Air Force reveals the status of downed drone. So they're basically saying now, the U.S. Air Force saying, we don't know the status of the drone. Uh, we're not sure. We're not sure. So. They're, they're playing very coy about it. And as you'll see, they're really backing off this as being important now. What does that tell you? Usually when they're doing that, it means... Guilt. It, 
It's very important, and they're very worried. Okay, and if you watch the Russian press conference on this, the Cheshire Cat grin uh, of the Russian general suggested that that Russia may probably already have possession uh, of this particular drone, and the technology in it could be potentially valuable. And the reason is, Mike, because if if this gets reverse engineered, if they took it intact, um, that means that they're going to have to retrofit or reboot or change the software or the encoding, encryption, whatever, on the whole U.S. fleet. Mm. Okay, that could take years if you know how fast, how slow the Pentagon elephant of the military industrial complex. And it's not just U.S. because, of course, other countries buy Reapers as well. So, so it actually exposes the entire NATO fleet. And the other sensitive part about this is these are all controlled by satellite. Okay, so this is a relay from a satellite mm. up and then down to Rammstein or a Stuttgart uh, base in Germany. That's where the, and Djibouti, there's another drone center there, but that's that's out of range of this operation. Right. This is run out of Germany. Um, so, this, so the Russians are reported on this. They say that the Russians have not said they have possession of it. Okay, so they're, they're basically playing aloof on it. Um, so that means I think that they might have it. Um, but let's take a look at uh, what some of the US politicians, the neocons are going crazy over this, Mike. And they're, they're, they're so incensed that Russia had the temerity um, to basically challenge uh, the, the, the U.S. Uh, control of airspace. The, US, the, the problem here, Mike, is that for Russians, th these drones are relaying information back, real-time targeting to Ukrainian uh, military, and they're potentially killing Russian citizens right. as a result of this. So Moscow is taking it extremely seriously. Here's uh, Marco Rubio, senator from Florida. Listen to what he has to say. I think our response should be to fly more of these in that area and to potentially have them escorted by U.S. fighter jets who are manned and have the capability to respond. These are, these are unarmed platforms. They're generally out there for reconnaissance, to see what's happening in the ocean, to have a situational awareness of what's going on in the area, totally according to international law. And so yeah. I think we should fly more of them. And in many cases, we should be prepared to scramble jets and respond if they are threatened by Russian aircraft. Does he not understand, Marco, who's never served in the military, you want to fly, you want to take American military aircraft and fly them escorting a drone. Do you understand that the only advantages we have in air-to-air -air combat is long-distance engagement? You see, we don't do dogfights anymore, Marco. It doesn't work that way. We take off and at a long distance with AWACS aircraft vectoring us in, we fire missiles to engage them in a long distance. You want to take all that advantage away, come up close next to their battle space where their air defenses will shoot you down. Their aircraft don't have to come close. They'll shoot you long distance. He doesn't know anything about war and he doesn't know anything about international law. Pro hint, Marco, when you fly an intelligence asset collecting intelligence on one target and you provide that intelligence to the other side to kill that other target, you're a participant in the conflict. You lose all the protections you have. You should be thankful the Russians aren't shooting down everything we got. Well, we should hold them accountable. We'll come back to Lindsay. So that, that was Mark and then Scott Ritter, former UN's re weapons inspector, talking with Judge uh, Napolitano on his show. But he, he kind of laid it out there, you know, <laughs> U.S. fighter jets escorting a drone. OK, if that's not a provocation, uh, I don't know what is. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they might as well have Marco there uh, in his private jet and they're just escorting Marco. Uh, as he's uh, testing the Russian air defenses. So here's Lindsey Graham, the uh, former wingman of John McCain, who has never seen a war or does get visibly aroused at the possibility of World War III. Watch him here. 
they shot down our drone, what should yeah. our answer be? Well, we should hold them accountable and say that if you ever get near another uh, U.S. set flying in international waters, your airplane would be shot down. What would Ronald Reagan do right now? He would, he would start shooting Russian planes down if they were threatening our assets. <laughs> they always invoke the ghost of Ronald Reagan for some reason. Uh, conservatives, bless him. So uh, L Lindsey Graham's basically going around saying we need to shoot down any Russian planes in international airspace. So these people are totally uh, off the cliff. Yeah. They're totally, they've lost the plot completely. So the Pentagon has released what we're going to call extreme dash cam footage here. This is an absolutely incredible clip. Okay, mind you, this would have been transmitted from the Reaper drone to a satellite and then back down to Germany. Um, and so they're probably packet loss uh, on the uh, on the transmission. So that's why it gets pixelated at the end. Okay, so but uh, let's have a look at this uh, footage here. Watch this. So this is a Russian Su-27 coming up here at a 45 degree angle. And he looks like he's dumping fuel. Why is he doing that? Uh, possibly dumping fuel there. Well, that would also cause major turbulence and problems with the turbo uh, open event uh, ways on this drone and could call and brought it down, basically. If that's what Russia did here, that is an absolutely genius move without any contact to bring uh, down the most sophisticated U.S unmanned aerial vehicle without even firing a shot. Mm. I mean, the level of uh, skill of the U.S. Uh, Russian pilots and also the maneuverability of uh, the fifth generation fighters of the Russian Air Force. So th if, they, if that's what they did, done, Mike, on a fuel dump, brought, <laughs> brought the drone down, that's absolutely incredible. Uh, the U.S. is claiming that they shot one of the propellers out. Okay, so it's, it's hard to know who to believe on this. So here's Mark Milley. This is General Mark Milley. And he, while he's not doing uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion seminars for his military, um, he comments sometimes on military affairs. So he's saying, now, they're backing off, Mike. The U.S., the down drone has no informational value. Abs no problem here. It's no, no longer has any informational value. No big deal. No big, he said it's probably four or 5,000 feet. Uh, at the bottom of the Black Sea, and it's not a big deal for us. Hey, you know, if the Russians find it, it's okay, but we don't think they've, they're, they're going to find it, and we're not going to find it, so nobody's going to find it, basically. That tells me that the Pentagon is very worried about this, very worried about this. So um, what are your thoughts on this before we go to the next clip? Well, I agree. They, they must be worried about it, and, uh, well, let's move on. Well, we're, we're very fortunate to have gotten leaked video. Uh, Russia, okay. has, Russia has leaked a video, and this shows you another angle, Mike, another angle. Let's take a look at this here. Oh, oh we're going to go back. Take a look at this. Watch. This is another angle not seen by the media. This is leaked video. Take a look. There's Putin in some sort of a helicopter-type uh, craft. There he goes. Yeah, excellent. Boom, put it right, brought it right down immediately. So there it is. That's what really happened. Well, it's about as uh, plausible as the Pentagon's explanation. So there we are. Okay. Well, let's uh, move on then, Vanessa. And uh, let's start off with uh, President Assad arriving in Moscow. 
Yeah, I mean, um, absolutely historic occasion. Actually, even reporters and uh, analysts in Syria were caught off guard. I saw Kivok Almasyan uh, tweeting out, has, has Assad gone to Moscow? So it, it was sort of an unexpected visit, but obviously one uh, that has been put together to really combat, we, we were talking in the last couple of weeks about the, how the West was capitalizing on the humanitarian tragedy of the earthquake. And I think I said last week, this is what the West wants to do. And the West, I also include, obviously, Israel. And I did make the point, it doesn't mean that they're going to achieve this, but, but it's understanding the nefariousness of the... Um, of the Western plans not responding to the humanitarian tragedy and yet exploiting it to increase uh, financing to military groups under their control, which are dominated by Al-Qaeda, etc. And in a sense, um, this is President Assad's and President Putin's response to that. And, and um, I think if, if we just watch uh, the video of President Assad arriving, uh, at the international airport in Moscow. Yeah, well, we, it it has been playing while you've been talking there. So so. Oh, uh, I'm sorry, I can't see anything. Sorry, <laughs> um, it's finished, I presume. No, it's still going. Uh, but uh, but if you want to move oh, on. Okay. All right. Well, I'll I'll continue. Um, so in the delegation that came um, with President Assad was the Minister of Economy from Syria the Minister of Defence, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, the Minister of Finance, the Minister of uh, State Planning Commission, um, the Secretary General of the Council of Ministers, and of course, who joined them, but the Syrian ambassador to Russia now, who was formerly uh, the permanent UN representative for Syria, um, Dr. Bashar al-Jafri, who everyone will know, of course, for the last astounding job that he did um, for years uh, combating the, um, the, the propaganda that was being disseminated even through the UN. Um, so you've got the images of President Assad actually arriving. He was met by Deputy Foreign Minister Mikhail Bogdanov. Now, uh, the opposition in Idlib and actually even in the West have, have made the point. In the West, it was very, uh, there was very scarce reporting on this event, strangely. When I looked for BBC reports today, it was quite difficult to find them. Um, it's quite normal for uh, within Russian protocol. Uh, when President Raisi came to Moscow recently, he was met by the energy minister, not by President Putin. So the criticism that was coming out um, saying that President Putin wasn't affording enough of an honor to President Assad by meeting him personally at the airport is absolute nonsense. And in the video, you can obviously see that President Assad is met by a guard of honor. Um, he was met by various uh, Russian ministers, as I said, led by uh, Bogdanov, who has been actually the point man for President Putin on uh, Syria. Um, and the discussions uh, were basically about joint cooperation, strategic alliance, economy, trade, unity, um, the Russian special operation in Ukraine, and particularly unity of the non-aligned axis um, in the face of global chaos that is being manufactured 
by uh, Western-led alliances, including, of course, NATO. Um, and for Syria to reinforce its support for Russia and vice versa. Um, regional initiatives, the chemical weapons file, of course, was high on the list because the West is trying to use the OPCW corrupted report um, to criminalize the Syrian government and, of course, by default, um, the Russian government. And also the, the recent, which we'll talk about later, the, the Saudi-Iran deal that has been brokered by China, um, which for Syria, one might imagine that they would have problems about this because obviously Saudi Arabia was responsible for the financing of many of the terrorist groups that have been leading the war against the Syrian forces since 2011. And it's also worth noting um, that uh, President Assad arrived on the 12-year anniversary of the start of the hybrid war, the Western-led UK-US intelligence agency-led um, hybrid war against Syria. So I'm sure that also wasn't a coincidence. Syria, in effect, um, doesn't have a problem per se with any kind of Iranian-Saudi Arabia um, rapprochement, because as we know, uh, there is also talk of meetings between President Assad um, and President Erdogan. I, I will also talk about that a little bit later. Um, but 40 investment projects were discussed by all the various ministers in various closed meetings with their, um, their respective uh, ministers in Russia, including for energy, electricity, oil and transport and housing, etc. So, you know, this was really both historic and an unprecedented meeting for both sides. Um, then the tweet from Kevok Almasyan, um, that before he met with President Putin, uh, Assad went to the tomb uh, of the unknown soldier in Moscow and laid a wreath at the tomb um, and was greeted by the commandant of Moscow, Lieutenant General uh, Yevgeny Seleznev. Um, are you playing the video? Hello? Sorry, yes, I am, yes. Okay. <laughs> so this is the video, basically, of President Assad um, heading to the tomb of the unknown soldier. I mean, you know, this was really a, a, a state visit um, extraordinaire, and particularly at this time, post the earthquake, post the rapprochement with Egypt, the Egyptian foreign minister has been um, visiting Syria. Um, there was the parliament of the Arab, uh, the parliamentary members of the Arab Union um, also came to Damascus. There was previously, of course, uh, the meeting in Damascus between President Assad and Hamas. Um, and so what we're seeing really is a reinforcement of the resistance alliances um, in the face of what we were talking about, this Western, uh, both manufactured and domestic, manufactured abroad and domestic chaos. Um, and then you have the image, I think, Mike, yes. of the meeting between Assad and uh, President Putin. And I, I mean, what I found fascinating, um, both in the photos and in the video that we'll play in a little, in a few seconds, 
is the body language between the two presidents. So President Assad, uh, just to reiterate, uh, in the uh, video meeting between uh, Putin and Assad, our position doesn't come only from the friendship and devotion that exists between us. Our position comes from the fact that the world really needs stabilization. Otherwise, it's heading for a major collapse. So if we just want to watch the actual uh, video of the, uh, the initial meeting. Сейчас я хочу воспользоваться моментом, потому что это мой первый визит после спецоперации на Украине. Повторить сирийскую позицию в поддержку этой спецоперации против неонацистов и старых нацистов. Я говорю, что это старый и новый нацист, потому что Запад, как и принимал старых нацистов у себя на земле, сейчас он стал их поддерживать в нынешнее время. موقفنا لا ينطلق اليوم من الصداقة القوية بيننا ولا من الوفاء لمواقف سوريا تجاهنا. Наша позиция не исходит только из-за дружбы между нами и из-за преданности, которая есть между нами. وإنما من حاجة العالم اليوم إعادة التوازن له وإلا سيذهب العالم باتجاه الانفجار والدمار. Наша позиция исходит от того, что мир действительно сейчас нуждается в стабилизации, иначе он пойдет к какому-то большому кроху. And there, I mean, I just wanted to take this photo of the actual meeting and demonstrate the size of the table between the two presidents compared to, I think, the various meetings that President Putin has had with Western leaders, where he's sat at his enormous meeting table. So clearly, um, not only the, uh, the, the, the geopolitical friendship between these two world leaders, but there's clearly also a personal um, friendship between them. And I think that is very clear from the body language, from um, the, the conversations that they had uh, and, and the results of the meeting. Now, one important part that was discussed uh, by both uh, parties and also by the foreign ministers was the potential for a meeting uh, in Moscow with Iran, Turkey and Syrian um, foreign ministers. Now, Assad made it very clear in Moscow that, uh, as the tweet shows, Moscow is working with Damascus to end the war. The meeting with Erdogan, President Erdogan, is related to Turkey leaving the Syrian territories, stopping the support of terrorism and restoring the situation to what it was before the start of the war against Syria in 2011. So President Assad was actually very clear that he's looking for those guarantees from President Erdogan pre-election. I, I keep saying it, but the, the elections in Turkey are looming and Erdogan is in a, his back is against the wall, basically. And so then the media was basically picking up the story of this foreign minister meeting in Moscow. Moscow hosts a meeting on Syria in which the deputy foreign ministers, my apologies, of Turkey, Russia, Iran, and I, I've kind of crossed out regime uh, just to highlight the fact that this lexicon is still being used. 
by Western media. But the reality is um, contacts here in Syria and Kibruk al-Masyan has also reported the fact um, that Damascus has cancelled the meeting because they don't have uh, the guarantees from Erdogan. And, and this is a very important point to make where people are talking about the occupation of Syria by Russia, by Iran. The reality is, and we've seen it many times, uh, Syria, uh, the, the government in Damascus has made decisions that are not to the liking of either Russia or Iran. Both of those countries are pushing um, for this, this making up between Assad and Erdogan because it takes a lot of pressure off them. Um, but basically, Assad is digging his heels in and he's saying, you know, there is going to be absolutely no meeting. We're not giving Erdogan any victory in PR, in media, in pre-election campaigning uh, until we receive the guarantees that we're looking for. So very clear message here that Damascus sovereignty, Syrian sovereignty, is always at the top of the pile in, in these negotiations. And as much as Russia and Iran like to put pressure on Syria to basically follow their roadmap, um, Syria very much has control over its own destiny, and that's an important point to make. The second point I wanted to make, um, Zionist media, of course, is, is in action now trying to basically um, destabilize the deal that's been brokered between Saudi Arabia and Iran by China. They're putting out messages saying that uh, Iran is going to stop supplying weapons or, or aid to um, Ansrullah, the resistance factions uh, in Yemen. Absolute nonsense. Uh, Sayed Mohammed Morandi has put out a tweet uh, denying this. So we're going to see a lot of this because, as you've already mentioned, Israel is not happy. Um, Israel is going through uh, pretty much a civil war situation within its own occupied territories. Um, and the chances are that that war is going to spill out. Of course, we've seen um, the unmitigated aggression against Syria since the earthquake, the bombing of civilian airports and civilian residential areas in Damascus itself. Um, and, you know, Netanyahu is going to be looking to export the war outside to distract from what's going on internally. And that can only be against Lebanon, which is Hezbollah, or against Syria. Uh, Kivork uh, Al-Masyan, in his most recent video on the subject, he believes that it will be with Lebanon. Of course, that would be suicide um, for Israel because that would bring them into direct conflict with the army of Hezbollah, which has been building for some time in preparation for this kind of um, conflict escalation. But also, even with Syria, you know, Syria has not been using the majority of its defenses. Uh, against Israel. It's been holding back, waiting for, the, for this potential escalation to happen. So, as I said before, Israel is actually in probably its most vulnerable position for years. And not forgetting um, that Yemen even has missiles trained <laughs> on the Israeli uh, cities. Okay, thank you, Vanessa. Well, let's just come on to the, I'm going to ask you for a little bit more comment in a second. Let's just come on to the mm -hmm. Iran-Saudi uh, uh, deal. Uh, so here is the uh, announcement by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the People's Republic of China. Uh, let's see what they're saying. Uh, the three countries announced that an agreement has been reached between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the Islamic Republic of Iran 
That includes an agreement to resume diplomatic relations between them and reopen their embassies and missions with a, within a period not exceeding two months. And the agreement includes uh, their affirmation in respect of the respect for the sovereignty of states and the non-interference in the internal affairs of states. Uh, so does that include Yemen? We'll, we'll discuss that in a second. Uh, they also agree that the ministers of foreign affairs of both countries shall meet to implement this, arrange for the return of their ambassadors and discuss means of enhancing bilateral relations. They also agreed to implement the security cooperation agreement between them, which was signed in 2001, uh, and the general agreement for cooperation in the fields of economy, trade, investment, technology, science, culture, sports and youth, uh, which was signed in 1998. So, uh, this obviously brokered by China. Uh, Xi Jinping is uh, absolutely taking the credit for this uh, and perhaps deservedly so. But uh, if we look at, at the, uh, well, look at this, first of all, Saudi, uh, Iranian Saudi agreements correspond to Russia's uh, security con uh, concept, senior lawmaker. This, uh, this quote from uh, a Russian senior lawmaker saying, the sides achieved the most important agreement to restore diplomatic relations for I consider a fundamental step towards normalization of the bilateral Saudi-Iranian interaction. This corresponds to the spirit of Russia's collective security concept for the Persian Gulf region, and it will contribute to the settlement of regional conflicts. So Russia absolutely uh, applauding this. But the question is, what about the United States? Uh, this is a Telegraph's report on a China brokers deal for Saudi and Iran to normalize relationships in major diplomatic coup. Uh, this is a big deal, said Michael Stevens, an associate fellow at RUSI, not because Saudi and Iran have patched things up, but because the US was nowhere near it. Shifts are happening very, very fast, was his comment. Uh, uh, but The Economist wanted to walk that back as quickly as possible, uh, but the deal may not end the country's proxy war, uh, nor cement China as the region's new powerhouse. So, um, Patrick, uh, interested in your views on this first, and then I want to get a little bit more from Vanessa. Sure. I mean, uh, it, it's a, not just Russia's security concept for the region. Uh, Iranian Foreign Minister Javid, this was exactly what he articulated at the Munich Security Conference. Uh, I think it was back in 2018, or maybe it's 2019, but I think it was 2018. He said that this is what the region really needs, is a Middle East built, run by the Middle East, a collective security arrangement uh, for all the major uh, powers there. And namely, he's talking about Saudi Arabia being the most important one there. Yes. So that, that that's now coming into fruition. This is a huge knock to the Abraham Accords, and because that was designed to pull the GCC closer to Israel. And this is a total nightmare for Israel because it's the one thing that Israel doesn't want, which is for Arab countries or for Sunnis and Shiites to be talking together and to be patching things up and uh, normalizing relations. Mm. Because the big prize, of course, here is the common market that exists uh, from Iran all the way to the Mediterranean, the potential common market uh, from uh, Iran to Iraq to Syria to Lebanon, um, and having uh, freedom of movement and trade and transport and an open border between uh, Iraq and Syria that's not uh, plagued with uh, jihadis and various and sundry U.S. Uh, bases there. So, I mean, that's the Israeli-U.S. Uh, uh, agenda, really, is to make sure that that region is compartmentalized. Right. And that they're fighting amongst each other and internally as well. So this is a big, big step. I think this is hugely significant. And the fact that China um, is running point on it says a lot. And what does that tell you? China is now Saudi Arabia's number one client. In fact, the, the entire Persian Gulf 
uh, China is their number one client for oil sales. Right. Okay, and for gas. So that means that China now wants to secure its long-term interests um, by helping to midwife, as to use a, a Newland and Jeffrey Pyatt term, to midwife this thing um, so that we have a stable economic environment there. So this makes sense. It makes sense economically. It makes sense politically. It's offered China an opportunity to show that they can do something that actually works. We'll see how it goes. Right. Okay. And so, Vanessa, we have this uh, report here from Arab News that's quoting the Wall Street Journal. The headline is, uh, Iran agrees to stop arming Houthis in Yemen as part of a deal with Saudi Arabia. So you're saying this is fake news? Yeah, it's totally fake news. I, I've checked it with various sources. And I mean, Iran is, would not abandon um, its alliances, and it certainly wouldn't uh, abandon the resistance in Yemen, you know, the, even the use of the term Houthis is a Western media trope to try and reduce the size of the resistance to um, Western imperialism, which is using Saudi Arabia and UAE, and even Israel is involved in Yemen, let's not forget that, um, to, to, to effectively um, partition Yemen, uh, steal the resources, etc. familiar pattern. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the, the use of the term Houthis tries to reduce it down to this tribal um, war within Yemen. Of course, it isn't. Um, the Salvation Government comprises, I think, of something, a, a coalition of 38 political parties. So it represents a huge uh, expanse of the political uh, fabric in Yemen. It, it certainly isn't comprising only of uh, Houthis. And Shula is, is, a, is a national resistance movement against Western-driven uh, imperialism. And I guess, um, again, as w that's what I said, Zionist media is going to be doing its best as it tried to drive a wedge between Syria and Russia. If you remember, it was reporting on, you know, uh, Russia supposedly taking its S-300s out of Syria and taking them to Ukraine, which was also proven to be largely false. Uh, and now we see these uh, messages being put out to try and presumably um, cause division between uh, Yemen and Shrulla and uh, Iran, but it's not going to happen. And look, there, while there might be some uh, question over whether uh, Iran will continue to arm Ansullah, or as the Americans call them in the West, the Houthis, um, the fact remains that the preconditions for this agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran stipulates that both parties will work together to wind down the conflict in Yemen. Okay, so that's part of the agreement. That's part of the memorandum understanding. And I think this agreement is showing you that, that, that that's the end, I think, the beginning of the end of the Yemeni conflict as we once knew it. Not to say that it's going to be an easy one to clean up um, because you have almost uh, a country divided and par almost partitioned um, and there's a lot of international players involved that would be very difficult to, to extricate from it. But it looks like the process has begun. Okay, let's move on then to, uh, to this. Uh, France holds largest ever military drills amid bloody backdrop of Ukraine war. Well, this is really uh, interesting, Mike, because uh, as, the, and we didn't mention this, when you talked about the France uh, uh, legislative move there right. by, by the executive, those are for, reserved for war powers mm. and for states of emergency. In Israel, too, those are war powers measures. What are these governments preparing for? 
look at what's happening in Holland. We didn't cover it, but massive uh, upheaval, grassroots protest, farmers taking over the highways, and the Farmers' Party just took control of the upper house in the Netherlands, the New Citizens Farmers' Party. That just happened in the, in the recent elections this week. So take a look at this. So this is a, a, a multinational interoperability drill that took place in, in France. Now, this is not trivial. Look at this. What are we looking at, Mike? 7,000 soldiers from NATO, from France, US, Italy, Spain, Belgium, and the United Kingdom. Okay, and what else? 2,300 vehicles deployed, 40 warplanes, 100 drones, 30 warships, and France's biggest aircraft carry, Charles de Gaulle. So this is a major drill on French soil simulating a uh, what we think looks like a Russian invasion or uh, a Russian coalition invasion. Let's take a look at the areas that were involved in this. Isn't this interesting, Mike? You've got up there in the uh, northeastern part of France and also in Brittany or around that sort of area there and then you the south of France. So these are the areas they're focusing on and also a smaller area that down by Bordeaux. So these are the areas they're focusing on here and this is called Exercise Orion. That's the name of the drill. So let's take a closer look, though. This is interesting. British troops on the streets of France simulating with protests coming from what looks like a, a pro-Russian mob mm. or protesters or pro-occupying. The, the idea is that we think it's Russia occupying these parts of France, and these are supporters supporting the occupation here, and these are NATO troops that are in position to deal with the unrest. So uh, I think we have this video clip. Let's take a look. This is amazing. It's like a scene out of Children of Men, if you remember that film with Clive Owen. But go ahead and roll this. ask what are the what's being planned here yeah we're not in on it I guess Mike mm. uh, the public's not allowed to know what they're planning what's NATO planning they're 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 prepping for a, a Russian coalition invasion of Europe mm. are they hoping this war is going to escalate they're preparing for it to escalate I don't see anybody going to the peace negotiations table at the moment Mike but I see these interoperability NATO drills being held simulating uh, war in Western Europe that should worry people. And just to clarify, those were British troops on the streets of France? Those are UK troops, yeah, involved in that. So that's what they're planning for. That's what they're, they're prepping for here. Let's take a look. This is the plot here, a thinly veiled, this is what this report says here on RFI, a thinly veiled reference to Russia as a hostile power called Mercury, which has is, which is invaded uh, France, uh, a French ally named Arnland. Okay, so it could be in France, it could be somewhere else. Uh, in Europe, so but that's the simulation that they're running here. So I think that's uh, pretty interesting. We didn't see a lot of coverage. Uh, di well, no coverage really. I think I didn't not see not that any, I'm aware of. Not in the UK media. But in the meantime, also no coverage of this. So let's bring this on screen. This is uh, Exercise Spring Resolve. Uh, this is a large scale. What they're describing as a large scale 
uh, exercise. It's been taking place over the last two days right across the UK to test the response of the emergency services and government to a major terrorist incident. So the Home Office planned and coordinated the, the national counterterrorism exercise uh, called Exercise Spring Resolve uh, with partners from the British Transport Police, the Metropolitan Police, the North Yorkshire Police, Counterterrorism Policing North East, the London Fire Brigade, the London Ambulance Service, North Yorkshire Fire and Rescue Service and Yorkshire Ambulance Service. Uh, it, was aiming, it was aimed to test the collective emergency services response to a series of no-notice violent attacks across multiple regions effective uh, multi-agency command and control arrangements to stop the attacks, save lives and undertake uh, effective and timely consequence management and recovery is how they're describing it. Uh, it formed part of a regular counterterrorism testing and exercise program, but this is on a larger scale than we've seen before. Now, there was very little on the uh, police, uh, Metropolitan Police website about this. Uh, in fact, I had to go back to the Google cache uh, to get even this uh, screenshot of it. Um, because this was police use only training exercise. It was taken down off the police website again. Um, but So what did Tom Tugan had the security minister have to say about this? Uh, the first duty of government is to protect the British people. Exercises like Spring Resolve are critical to ensure all agencies and departments are prepared for any type of attack. And of course, why were they doing this? Well, their claim was that it was because of criticism in uh, volume two of the Manchester Arena inquiry report. Uh, and so they felt the need to do that. So in parallel with that, then they have uh, stood up this organization, the National Protective Security Authority. This is coming under the uh, auspices of MI5. Um, and uh, so this is a new body, uh, state-sponsored attempts at stealing sensitive research and information, as well as counterterrorism. Uh, it's all as a result of the integrated uh, review refresh. Uh, and so uh, a couple of days ago, they announced the government announced the creation of the National Protective Security Authority to help organizations defend themselves against national security threats. So as I say, it is part of MI5. It's going to increase the UK's resilience to state threats as well as terrorism. And they say it's going to import, play an important part in strengthening our country's uh, national security. So uh, Tom Tugan had it took to Twitter again. Uh, saying we take the security of sensitive information uh, incredibly seriously. Uh, banning TikTok and government devices is proportionate uh, and protect our data. And of course, this is one of the outcomes of, of all this uh, reorientation and the uh, integrated review and so on, uh, because uh, China uh, apparently spying on everybody, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so it's no longer on uh, government uh, devices. The question is, maybe they should worry more about WhatsApp. Uh, based on recent reports than, than TikTok, because I wasn't aware that Matt Hancock was uh, exposed as a result of him giving away his TikTok uh, uh, posts. Or his WhatsApp post, it right? Was his, it was his WhatsApp yeah. post. That's Facebook. Precisely. That's Facebook. So maybe Tom Tugendhat should also be asking the question, is the NSA hoovering up all my data and reading everything and keeping it cached and the metadata? You know, the United States is basically watching, listening, and has access to pretty much everything. Didn't Tucker Carlson say they showed him his signal communications, or that he, they had, NSA had been taking right. encrypted, end-to-end -end encrypted signal communications. So um, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, you can say the Chinese might be trying to spy via TikTok. It's a little bit of a stretch, but I mean, how many MPs are on TikTok all day? I mean, 
or I guess, uh, do you uh, use TikTok? Do they Greg use Hans. Greg Hans, uh, I believe he said uh, something along the lines of, well, I can't remember what he said, but he was basically saying, they're not getting my TikTok off me. Uh, so there are quite a few MPs using TikTok, it seems. That, that, pathetic. I, that's more worrying than the Chinese spying. Precisely. Is, is how many yeah. MPs are spending all their time on bloody TikTok. But anyway. Okay, well, look, let's move to Serbia, Kosovo and whatnot. Okay, so the, 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 you're going to see a strange constellation of events happening at the same time. So there's pressure right now being applied. The European uh, meetings coming up regarding uh, Serbia and Kosovo, top of the agenda, and the U.S. is on a full court press for, for PR on this. So this is the U.S. envoy here, U.S. ambassador to Kosovo, Jeffrey uh, Hovenier, and he's saying uh, that Kosovo, uh, he's, he's basically saying the EU's planning for normalization of relations with Serbia. And he's calling it a significant step. So this is what's coming out of Washington. They're pushing it really hard. They're put, placing a lot of pressure on the government in Serbia to sort of come to the table and recognize Kosovo as a state. This has always been the problem here. And so the this has created a little bit of a backlash in Serbia itself. And so more conservative or right-wing groups are now putting a lot of pressure on President Vucic here um, to make sure that uh, this is not going to happen. So Serbian leader now says he won't sign anything uh, during the Kosovo talks. He's clarified his position on this. He's basically saying, nope, it's not going to happen. Let's look at the actual statement here from President Alexander Vucic. Uh, when someone signs something, I will be the one to sign it, he says, um, and the people will decide on that, says Vucic. As for signing something uh, in Ohrid, uh, I'm not planning on everything. He's talking about the EU meeting here. So he's basically saying, I'm, you know, I'll go, we'll go, we'll talk, we'll have negotiations, but we're not going to sign any declaration or anything like that there. Why is this important? Why is the timing of this so crucial? And why is it important for Europe and the United States to make something happen here? And think about it. So who is uh, Serbia's, uh, who's their brother's keeper? Their greatest ally is Moscow. Uh, geopolitically. And so, but this is a big problem. The, the establishment of Kosovo as a sort of NATO protectorate in the middle of Europe, not recognized by all its neighbors, not getting official statehood um, because of the way in which Yugoslavia was dismembered by NATO, that, that's going to create a, a sort of veil of hypocrisy over Western calls um, to return Crimea back to Ukraine, for instance. This is always going to be a sticking point. So is it possible behind the scenes we have a potentially a quid pro quo situation? If Russia uh, and Serbia recognize Kosovo, then we'll recognize Crimea, and at least that sort of problem has been canceled out on both sides, and they can move on to other issues. If, you're, if you think that the West is desperate to find an exit strategy for the debacle that is the Ukraine proxy war right now. Mm -hmm. That's what I think is possibly happening here, but we're not sure. But let's take a look at this. This is what Tony Blinken's saying. The, this was from back in this last spring, and the position, as far as I know, has not changed officially. The U.S. will not consider recognizing Crimea as part of the Russian Federation. So, I mean, that, that's the card that the United States has been holding um, throughout this whole conflict, and even before this as well. So you can see how these, these two things are reciprocal. Mm. They're absolutely reciprocal. Now here, and why is this important? This brings us to another problem of international law. And so this, you, you reported on this, didn't you? Yes. 
last week. So an incredible coalition here. What kind of coalition? A bipartisan coalition attempting to pull U.S. troops out of Syria. So this is AOC in the squad, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, who the left regard as QAnon. So you've got the squad and what the Democrats call QAnon teaming up with Matt Gates who's a, a, a conservative Republican here, and uh, Jim Jordan. And so this is an incredible coalition. Now, they didn't get the vote, but the fact that they're going for this, I think, is significant. Mm -hmm. this, we have never seen this before in U.S. politics. Why would the U.S., why would some people in the U.S. think it's a good idea to get out of Syria and, and quick? because of this issue of territorial sovereignty mm -hmm. and invoking uh, United Nations Charter and Article 51. The United States is in violation of that as we speak. As Vanessa said as well, Turkey is in violation of that. They're occupying Syrian sovereign territory. So you have these two transgressions against Syria happening as we speak, mm -hmm. and the entire, quote, international community is basically wanting to drag Russia into a new international war crimes tribunal for the crime of aggression mm -hmm. or violating the sanctity of the territorial integrity of the sovereign state of Ukraine, etc. As we've argued before, the territorial integrity issue in international law is only one side of the issue. The other side is self-determination, mm -hmm. and that is also outlined in the UN Charter as well. And the Donbass republics have gone through all of the steps required in order to achieve autonomy and to declare at least themselves and recognized by some of their neighbors as statehood. So in, in a way, they have a stronger case than Kosovo um, in terms of how they came to be in, in, in terms of that civil war. But Americans might argue that it's the same case. It's the same exact case. So let's look at this here. So this is the EU, but they're planning this massive tribunal. They're calling it a tribunal like no other, prosecuting Russia's crimes of aggression in Ukraine. So they're trying to put this special tribunal together. It's inherently problematic. And who is it problematic? Mainly to the United States. Because then the question is going to come up. When does the statute of limitations <laughs> when does the statute of limitations end on this? Because the United States, we have a whole litany of violations and crimes of aggression that, that go all the way back. Even if you want to count the carpet bombing of Raqqa and Mosul by the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy in their fight against ISIS. You know, there, there's all sorts of things, not just the things that we mentioned, but there's a whole from Iraq to Libya. Uh, Afghanistan. Afghanistan. So and uh, so anyway, this is a problem here. So here's Lloyd Austin, and look at this. Ooh, they backed off, didn't they, this week? Look at that. The Pentagon is blocking the U.S. from sharing evidence on Russian atrocities in Ukraine with the International Criminal Court, the ICC. Military leaders fear, in the Pentagon, that uh, setting a precedent that might pave the way for the prosecution of Americans. The United States is not a signatory to the International Criminal Court, so neither is Russia. Russia maintains their positions. We're not a party. They have no jurisdiction over us mm. or anything that we do. It's pretty much the same position that the United States has. The United States initially uh, joined it back when it formed, but then they pulled out. So the U.S. and Russia are in pretty much the same position here. So you can see they're, they're really worried. Washington does not want to open this Pandora's box. And for good reason, because it would be an absolute mess and a quagmire legally. So, and this is a great, uh, this is a pretty fair, even-handed piece, surprisingly, by the Washington Post. The United States and the ICC have an awkward history. And so I think this is important to get a background on this. But the war in Ukraine could prove to be a chance, 
according to some Americans, to reimagine the U.S. relationship with the International Criminal Court. Last year, a group of lawmakers led by Lindsey Graham, of all people, Republicans tend to eschew the ICC, passed a new law that allowed for more scope and cooperation with the court. And Graham praising, <laughs> look at this with Graham praising Putin for rehabilitating the ICC in the eyes of the Republican Party and the American people. It, that's a tongue-in-cheek comment there. It's basically saying, thanks for invading Ukraine uh, because it's a chance to uh, reinvigorate the ICC uh, So during his trip to The Hague. So that's Graham. And here's another final blow, Mike, to this whole thing. The genocide, the genocide charges. The UN Commission fails to find evidence of Russia's, quote, genocide in Ukraine. That's problematic, okay? Because they were hoping that was going to be the big sort of marquee uh, point that they would build a lot of this uh, tribunal around. And it looks like, as we said before in this program, uh, it, does, it looks like there's no beef uh, on that burger. Uh, if you can, and the Bucha thing is interesting because mm. you're not hearing as much about Bucha and the maternity ward in Mariupol because a lot of people are seeing uh, this for what it truly is, which were sensational media stunts. But just look at this. This is um, a, a really important point by the uh, former ambassador to the United States. This is Prince Turkey bin Faisal, and he said, "Aggression is aggression, whether it's committed by Russia or Israel." He's He's, this was an earlier uh, interview he did uh, a few months ago. Um, and yet there has been no such effort to sanction Israel. So he's pulling, Saudis are willing to pull Israel into this conversation. And he's basically saying that the sanctions were placed on Russia, and, but they haven't been, and Israel's invaded and you know, destroyed uh, Arab countries for years. There's a total double standard here. And that the stealing of Palestinian land by Israel continues despite assurances that Israel gave to the signatories of the peace accords, including the Abraham Accords, which we mentioned, uh, between the UAE and Israel. So that's interesting. That's uh, Ben Faisal there. So the Palestinian people are still occupied. They are being uh, imprisoned willy-nilly by the Israeli government, attacked as assassinations of Palestinian individuals take place almost on a daily basis. So they're, they're ready to do that, Mike. They're ready to pull that card. And that really throws things into turmoil in terms of building a narrative that the West is so desperate to do. And we just have to bring out the old quote here <laughs> by our uh, old friend, uh, Marshall Zirkoff. He said, we have liberated Europe from fascism, but they will never forgive us for it. Indeed. <laughs> the timeless classic of a quote. Yes. Okay. Well, look, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. So thank you very much, uh, Patrick. Thank you, Vanessa, as well. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes uh, for some extra. Was there something you wanted to? Oh, we went to. Oh, well, yeah. Sorry. You just. Uh, well, we just wanted to say have a great. Uh, we had a St. graphic Patrick's for St. Patrick's Day, but yeah. we duffed it up. Yeah. But uh, it's St. Pat's Day. So happy St. Pat's Day, everybody. Back in a few minutes for some extra. We'll see you then. Thanks for joining us.